Well, welcome to Sunday nights. If you're new, if you haven't been with us before, Sunday nights is kind of our low-key study, so you know we don't want anybody to miss out on the opportunity to hear God's Word. And it's also a time when we're covering some pretty significant ground here in the Scriptures. And so if you turn uh, in the book of Acts to chapter 14, we've now come to this series of chapters. And remember, this originally uh, was a letter, a very lengthy one, written by the Apostle Luke. Uh, We can call it Luke chapter 2, if you want. Luke book 2, if you want. Uh, But it really is the continuing saga of the Acts of the Apostles. And chiefly, for the next five or six chapters, uh, we have the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so this particular section is really Paul's mission. This is where we find the Apostle Paul at work planting the early church. And he's going to be moving from city to city. We've already covered a number of them. And we're going to try and take two chapters tonight, chapters 14 and 15. And we see these churches begin to unfold throughout what is modern-day Greece principally, but along also the coast, which would have been at that time Phoenicia, uh, even into parts of Syria, a little bit of what is modern-day Turkey. Um, But these churches begin to be planted. And as they're planted, like all churches, um, they're not perfect. And so these churches have issues. Each one of these churches uh, has a specific issue to which Paul will actually go and uh, kind of be the solution, if you will. He's going to address those things. And so let's continue tonight. Acts 14, we'll pick up in verse 1. And very prayerfully, we're going to be able to take both Acts 14 and 15 tonight. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now, much like these letters would have been written, written, uh, just written and then read in in the churches uh, in that region of the world, Lord, as we read the story uh, of the founding of the church that is still the church, Lord, the, the one true church, the church of the living God, the called out ones, the, the ecclesia, the assembly, uh, Lord, that we're privileged to be a part of. Would you bless us as we study your word? We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. And God's people all said, Amen. Verse 1, Acts 14. And now it happened in Iconium that when they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and remember the Apostle Paul being formerly uh, a Jewish Pharisee, he goes there, it's a great place to start. Uh, Much like you would have favorite places that you would go to, people that you could identify with, though he's going to be used to to minister to the Gentile world, he goes first to the synagogue. It kind of gets his feet wet in each town. And so he goes together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a a great number, uh, a multitude, if you will, of both Jews and of Greeks believed. And so he's preaching the gospel. Remember that the Great Commission, as we know it there in Matthew 28, is to go and preach the gospel to all the world. It's not go and start a church. It's certainly not go and start a denomination. It's not go and buy a building. It's go and preach the gospel. And so during this period of time of formation of the, of the early church, they are very gospel-centric. It is a simple message. 
It's not complex. Paul's not addressing all kinds of issues within the culture or the society, which the church has always been uh, part of the solution to the things that ail this world. But Paul is preaching the gospel. He, he simply is giving this message that Jesus Christ alone is the answer to that eternal question, what's going to happen when I die? And so he's preaching that message. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And so we see division beginning already in this little church in just these first seven verses. There's a schism that exists. And whenever you have the gospel preeminent, and you have religion in the region, you will always have a schism between a gospel teaching, a gospel preaching, a Bible teaching, a Bible preaching church, and religion. And so those two things are in view here in this particular chapter. And therefore, they stayed there a long time because they were trying to sort out the details. Look, ministry sometimes takes a lot of time. I have friends all over the world that pastor churches, and some of them have been pastoring the same church for decades. And that church is smaller than the number of people that were probably in the cafe tonight. They've spent a lot of time investing in lives. And so though we happen to be a large church, and we happen to be a, a very large facility, a vast majority of churches, even to this day, are a hundred or so people. And it takes time to invest in the lives of the people in order for the church to be healthy. And the Apostle Paul, along with his team, begins to do this very thing, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. And notice the message is the word of grace. It's not church. It's not our particular style of ministry. It was the message of grace. It was the gospel, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so during this time, remember that signs and wonders were still occurring at the hands of the apostles because the church is being uh, foundationally laid. And so the signs and wonders were authenticating miracles so that when someone were to question Peter or Paul, uh, they were to question you know, one of the disciples, possibly James or Mark or John Mark, or they would come along and Silas is teaching with them. Timothy, when they were questioned or asked, one of the ways that the Lord identified them as having a message that was from him is they could do stuff other people couldn't. We are not to be looking today for those same types of miracles because the church is well established. The word is complete. Remember, they were not carrying around Bibles at this time. Matter of fact, the Gospels were still being, uh, even the Gospels themselves, still circulated. Still not in the hands of the average everyday person. So there was a necessity for those authenticating signs and wonders. And so there were healings, there were miracles on a very regular basis that caused people to say there's something different about these men. And the message that they have, which was simply the Gospel, was authenticated by the fact that they were healing people, people were being uh, peeled of all kinds of sickness. Verse 4, he goes on, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And so you can, be, you can see the division beginning to happen. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, 
they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe and the cities of Lyconia. Now, Lyconia is the Lycus River Valley. And in there are the cities of Philippi and Ephesus. It's a rather long single river. The Wolf River flows through it. So there's a region that's in there. And all these cities are along that river and into the surrounding region where they preach the gospel there. And again, notice what they're doing. They're keeping it extremely simple. This city that they're in is more Greek than Roman, though it was a Roman province. Uh, the Roman province of Galatia, which is again in northern uh, Syria, modern-day Turkey. Uh, but the synagogue that was there was filled with all kinds of, kind of a mixture of cultures. In other words, it was a multicultural city. And, and the only thing that you really take away from these first seven verses is some very simple things. That they stuck to the message. They didn't change the message no matter what was happening to them. And as they preached that very simple gospel message, it changed the lives of people. And it also brought about all kinds of problems for those that were preaching it. And that same basic thing happens to us today. If you really preach the gospel, if you really teach out of the Bible, people are going to say, well, you're kind of fanatical. You know, you really take this Bible thing too seriously. I mean, can't we talk more about psychology? Can't we do more about, you know, social works? Can't we do some other things? Look, the church has a singular mission. And people sometimes don't like to hear this, but the church is principally here to preach the gospel. That is the reason that we are still here. All the other things we do so we can preach the gospel, amen? There is no reason for church to exist apart from the saving grace of God being preached. Because if we're just a social club, then we can just do a social club. But we are a group of people called out from the world, not like the world, whose primary task is to preach the gospel, to see to it that people have an opportunity to receive Christ and be saved. We cannot lose sight of that. Because the church that loses sight of that loses its actual purpose and mission. All churches are to be gospel-hearted. The second city, verse 8 as we now pick the story up, it goes to Lystra. This is, again, a Roman province of Galatia. It's about 18 miles southwest of Iconium. So you can see these are just towns that are very close together, and he's going from one town to another town. So in a, in a lot of ways, this is, really reads as a story. This is like the Apostle Paul goes to a city, and he ministers there, and then he goes to the next city, and he ministers there. He's going to visit this particular city, uh, Lystra, three times. He's going to do it on all three of his first three missions journeys. And, and each time he ministers in Lystra, there is something that happens. And so it's an important city. And it kind of gives us a picture here that ministry is very, very busy at times. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so pick up with me now, if you would, in verse 8. And in Lystra... A certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, and he was a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And it's important that there's a little bit of a distinction here. We're told that this man never walked, that this was a birth defect. This was not something where anyone else could take credit for it. It wasn't like he had a disease or a sickness that could be healed. This man had a physical problem where he could not walk from his mother's womb. 
And this man heard Paul speaking. Now I want you to notice the power of what's being said here. He only heard Paul speaking. Paul doesn't touch him. Paul doesn't anoint him with oil. Paul doesn't, you know, tell him to do a bunch of things. Paul doesn't say, go wash yourself this way. Paul gives him zero instruction about what he needs to do. All that happens to this man, this is the power of the word of God. He heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and he walked. That is the power of the spoken word. And sometimes we kind of put this emphasis on other things being necessary. God heals when God wants to heal. And God heals by the word of his mouth. In other words, God speaks those things into existence the same way that he spoke our universe into existence. God doesn't need oil. God doesn't need my hands. God doesn't need us to do something specific. God's word heals. It's his word of power that heals. There's power in that. Now, those other things that we do, we do principally because God says, if there be any sick among you, bring them to the elders of the church and pray for them and anoint them with oil for the effect of the fervent prayer. Notice what it is. It is the fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. The oil is obedience. The oil is symbolic. But it is the word spoken. It's the prayer offered. It's the faith of the person who hears it that actually does the healing. Paul sees that in this man. He simply says, look, you have faith. That faith is sufficient. If you believe, you'll be healed. You're going to see four things in this passage. First, the response to the word by the crippled man. Now the crowd's response to the crippled man. Verse 11. And now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices in the Lyconian language, which would have been likely Greek. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. <laughs> Look, these guys, maybe they traveled from Mount Olympus and they came over here to visit us. Because they believed at that time, uh, they're just around the opposite side of the Aegean Sea, uh, barely on the main peninsula of Greece as it descends uh, down back again towards the south, towards the, the tip of the, of the Grecian peninsula. There's Mount Olympus, just across from Thessalonica, that we're, the book that we're studying on Sunday mornings. He says, look, they've come down to us. They, they traveled likely from Mount Olympus. And Barnabas they called Zeus. Now Zeus, of course, was the principal god of the Greeks. He's like the god of gods. And Paul they called Hermes, also known to many of you probably as Mercury, the messenger. And so you have the principal god Zeus and you have the messenger Hermes or Mercury. Because he was the chief speaker, the one who would bring the message. And then the priest, and I want you to see how people who don't know the Lord often try and get, on the, get in on the action uh, of what's going on in a, in a church that actually is preaching the word. A little secret to you, we often have people come here and they're actually spying out to see what it is that we're doing because there's a bunch of people here. And, and they're coming to see what it is that we're doing so they can hopefully go replicate it someplace and maybe their church will grow. They're not actually coming to find out what we're really doing because all we're really doing is just teaching God's word. 
but they think there's something else that's going on. So they'll come. Very similar circumstance. And so this priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, (laughs) brought oxen and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitude. So he sees an opportunity. He says, maybe I can boost my church attendance if I go down here and hang out with Barnabas, who they think is Zeus, and Paul, who they think is Mercury or Hermes. You see, uh, Jupiter was another name for Zeus. And so as they're, they're thinking, these guys, this is great, man. The chief god of my temple has come to visit, so I'll go down and see if I can get some of that. You see, it's really important to be able to distinguish between the real thing and the false thing. And so the apostles next respond to the crowd and what's going on as this guy comes down. Verse 14, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? Now, it would have been kind of, an, a, you know, you can almost see the culturally relevant church of today saying, well, hey, we can maybe piggyback on this whole them calling us Zeus and Hermes thing. You know, we'll let them identify. If that's how they identify, we'll let them identify that way. After all, we don't want to confuse them. So they think we're Zeus and they think we're Mercury or Hermes. So we'll just let them keep thinking that and we'll try and capitalize on it. But they were so intent on only preaching Christ crucified, know what they did. We also are men with the same stature as you. In other words, we're not gods. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. They not only don't receive the praise of men, they not only don't capitalize on it, they say what these guys are doing is wrong. The church today needs to be able to stand up boldly and say, look, we're about preaching Christ crucified alone for the remission of sin and teaching God's word with authority. We're not about receiving praise in any other way, any other fashion, but that God alone is the answer to what ails mankind. They stand on the promises of God. And then just so that they make sure that everyone knows that they're only talking about the one true God, He is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. What is the story of the book of Genesis to the Tower of Babel? You guys do whatever you want. But eventually man became so evil that God dispersed the nations and and gave us the multiplicity of languages. And he said, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness, and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to him. They tell him the truth, and they're still so bent that they're, well, now we'll, whoever that is will sacrifice to him too. People are hungry for the truth. We need to tell them the truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of that void. 
We need to give God the credit for what God has done. And tell people the truth. You can straighten out their doctrine later, but start them with nothing but the truth. Don't let people believe for a moment a falsehood, a lie, something that's not true. And then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came. Remember, now they're in walking distance. These are, you could have walked from Iconium, you could have walked from Antioch, and they came there. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So he's blasphemed Zeus, he's blasphemed Hermes, Mercury. He's told them the truth, and after he tells them the truth, what happens to him? He gets stoned. He's left for dead. You know, when you mess with other people's gods, it really gets them upset. You don't like it. The same is true today. You see, it would have been a lot easier. Let me show something to you. It would have been way easier. Paul would have just received the worship. He could have compromised. He said, well, you know, they're, they're kind of a little bit whack, but okay. He could have even said, well, I'm going to be really relevant to him, so I'm going to try and use it to kind of teach them the truth. But he said, no way. I don't want them thinking for a second that this is about Paul or this is about Barnabas. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And so he says, I'll take the heat. And it's interesting because once the truth is out, it's pretty quick how how people can turn. One minute Paul was a god to be worshipped, the next minute he was a criminal to be slain. Notice the disciples' response next in verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. You can see Paul, the guy's guy's preaching the truth. People want to worship him. He's saying, no. You know, most people, when other people want to worship you, if you're not walking with the Lord, that's a pretty huge temptation. It's one of the reasons that people are so messed up when they get involved in athletics and they're good at it, the film industry, television. You know, we, we kind of enjoy the, the adoration. It was a pretty huge temptation. So Paul says, I'll have none of it. And it ends up getting him stoned to near death. Now, I happen to believe that this is very likely, as Paul references later in his life, that he was taken up into the third heaven. I believe this is likely where it happened. Now, whether he was actually dead at this point in time and raised from the dead, or whether he was mostly dead, like in Princess Bride, there's dead and there's mostly dead. And he was just mostly dead. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But I know this. They thought he was dead. So I'm pretty sure he looked pretty well dead. And so as he's laying there and the disciples gather around him, they're like, what are we going to do? Can you imagine Paul just, okay, well, that didn't go so well. And let's move on. You know, Jesus actually said that. Uh, if, If you remember one of the things that the Lord Jesus actually told us, if you're received not, wipe the dust off your feet and move on. You preach the gospel and then go. You know, just do what God calls you to do. As far as Scripture says, this is the only stoning that Paul ever experienced. And I believe it's probably the one he references there in Second Corinthians. 
But God received the glory for it. People were saved. Can you imagine the people that did the stoning? The guys that were, you know, you've blasphemed our God Zeus. You've blasphemed Hermes. They think they've killed him. They drag him out of the city. You know, because if you're so unconscious that you can be drug out of the city, you're mostly dead. And so they drag him out. They leave him there. And they come back and he's not there. He's gone. And then word comes back to them. Now they move on to Antioch, the, the next city. And, and as he moves on to Antioch, it's really interesting kind of how the Lord puts these things together for us. And we're going to see him preaching. We're going to see him strengthening people. We're going to see him organizing churches. He is not in any way, shape, or form bothered by this whole thing, ultimately. I'm sure he was not happy about being stoned near to death. Or to death, we don't, don't actually know. But we know what happened to Paul after this. And it's the thing that we have to remember. Look, there's going to be times when you're going to take some heat. The question is, are you going to get back up and serve Jesus? Are you going to keep serving the Lord? Even though maybe you went through some very difficult thing. Maybe it cost you some friends. Maybe it cost you some family members. Maybe there was a cost that you paid. Maybe you lost your job over standing for Christ. The question is, what are you going to do when that happens? Verse 21 are back to Antioch and Syria. So they've gone from Pisidian Antioch to Antioch and Syria. They've traveled that 110 miles or so. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples, and they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. You remember when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to pick up your cross and follow me? Paul's saying the same thing. Look, to be a disciple, it's going to cost you something. You can't be a disciple for free. There's no such thing as a free ride in discipleship. You're going to have a cross to bear. There's going to be something in your life, maybe many things in your life, that you're going to look back on after your days are done on this earth, and you're going to say, that was me counting the cost. That was me taking the things that, that God had for me and allowing the Lord to, to use tribulation in my life to enter the kingdom of God. And so when they had appointed elders, verse 23, in every church, and that word elder there, Titus uses it in chapter 1, in verse 5, and in verse 7, exact same word as bishop it means exactly the same thing as pastor it in essence is the word shepherd if you really want to look at it that way it means overseer Uh, it's very equivalent so you could use pastor you can use bishop you can use elder you can use overseer as far as scripture is concerned in essence all of those things though they are titles of an office they're really the same office So someone who's a pastor is also a bishop in that sense as far as the scriptures are concerned. We get all hung up on calling people names and and giving them titles. But as far as the scriptures are concerned, when someone is called a bishop, it's the same thing as an elder, and the elder is the same thing as a pastor, and that it means that you meet those criteria that are found in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy uh, and Titus principally. And so they appointed, and that word appointed, we actually derive from it, our word ordained. It means to take counsel together and to decide. 
In other words, these men gathered together and said, look, we see the work of God in these men's lives, and we're going to appoint them, we're going to ordain them as pastors, bishops, overseers, under-shepherds before the Lord in these churches. And the reason being is that the, the church itself is both an organism, in other words, it's alive, and it is also an organization, and it has structure. And you have to have both things. And in order for something to be an organism, an organism always has parts, amen? And that's pictured, actually, as Paul writes about spiritual gifts. They're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. And as he does those things, as he writes about spiritual gifting, he says, look, the eye can't say to the hand, we don't have any need of you. And if you don't have a hand, then you can't have any feeling. If you don't have an eye, you can't have any seeing. So there are parts to the body. In other words, it's organic. It's an organism, but it's also organized. There are pieces that have specific duties and tasks. And among them is that of pastor or teacher or elder or bishop, whatever word you want to use. We use pastor because it's a generic term. But a pastor is also an elder. It's someone who's been proven of character. And so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now I want you to notice something. This is something that God had already done in their life, and all that's happening is the leadership of the church is recognizing it. And that is basic ordination. When we ordain a pastor here, we're simply acknowledging what God has done in that person's life. It's not something special about what we're doing to them. It's about what God has done to them. We've seen it, and we've said, this person fits the criteria that should be in, in view if you're going, going to be in pastoral ministry. So ordination is us recognizing what God has done by saying this person is an elder. And from there, after they had passed through Poseidon, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And there they sailed to Antioch. And so they've gone from Pisidian Antioch uh, to Syrian Antioch. They're between these two places, so they're not the same. There's two Antiochs here. And when they had commended the, to the grace of God for the work which they had completed, and now when they had come together and gathered the church together, they reported all that God has done, and they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. A few things. First, they preached the gospel. They made disciples. They taught many. Sometimes church gets really busy about other things. We need to make sure the main thing's the main thing. It's kind of difficult for us to understand how they got back into cities from which they had been expelled. But here's the secret. They were doing what God had called them to do. And so God got them back into the city. It doesn't make any human sense. Matter of fact, for us as human beings... You know, you get beat up and stoned, you generally don't go back there. It's like, I'll stay out of that neighborhood. But when God calls, God appoints, God anoints, God gifts, God says, go, you go. But they preached the gospel and they made disciples. A second thing we see in these verses is they strengthened, they confirmed believers. They caused the church to be strengthened. One of the great things that we get an opportunity to do in each other's lives is to build each other up. 
The word that we have in Scripture, especially in the book of Ephesians, is to edify. It means to build up. It means to undergird. It means to strengthen the foundation. Paul was busy going around strengthening the foundation of churches, of people. You see, you see ministry is made out of people. Ministry is not buildings. Ministry is people. And so Paul ministered to people. The third thing that you see here is that they organized churches. And as I said, the church is an organism and an organization. And if the organism is not organized, it will die. We have a lot of organization here. It takes, it takes a, a lot of work, if you will, of organization to do all the things that happen here on any given day. You know, it doesn't just happen by itself. We have almost 100 people on staff here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. Full-time. In all kinds of varying capacities. And so the organism of the church has to also be organized. People knowing what they need to do and doing it. Being given authority and being given responsibility simultaneously. So they have the responsibility that they're supposed to get done and the authority to carry it out. There's organization. And finally, we we see here in chapter 14 that as they report to their sending church, they're they're saying, look, here's the things that that we've gotten done. Jesus had the local church, I believe, in mind when he gave the Great Commission there in Matthew 28. Can you imagine what could be done with the wasted wealth of our nation in preaching the gospel? You think, I mean, if you just translated the amount of money squandered in Las Vegas into preaching the gospel and purchasing Bibles and planting churches, can you imagine? I probably just freaked some people out. But the bottom line is, if you took those resources that are wasted and applied them to doing the work of the gospel, it would be monumental what could occur. You see, what's in view here is for us as a church, there's plenty to be busy about. Chapter 15 gives us that result of being busy. Verse 1, chapter 15 here in the book of Acts. And then certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these are the very people to whom Paul would write the book of Galatians. They were Galatianists. They were the Jesus plus something else group. They were, well, it's good, this whole grace thing, we like that, but you also need to be a legalist. You also need the law of Moses. And therefore, it says in verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others with them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. In other words, they're going to hold the first church meeting. They're going to get together with the elders, and they're going to discuss what's going on here. This is an important picture here. Because the way to resolve conflict is not to ignore it. Ignoring conflict generally will not make it go away. Occasionally, but very rarely. Generally, when you ignore something that's deep-seated in the church, all it does is fester. And so they're going to go and gather the guys together. They're going to talk about this dispute. They go to the apostles, they go to the elders about the question. So 
being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, so that would be modern-day Lebanon, and Samaria, that would be northern Israel, southern Lebanon, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all these things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and commend and command to them, excuse me, to keep the law of Moses. So they're coming to discuss this very problem, and guess who the enemy sends? Someone who has that exact argument in mind. So here they come, they're going to go to Jerusalem, they're going back to the mother church, so to speak. It all started in Jerusalem, amen? That's where the church was, in essence, birthed. And it went from there over to Jaffa, and from Jaffa to Caesarea. Remember, we've studied these things. And from Caesarea, it's gone around the coast of the Aegean Sea. It's traveled all the way down to the tip of the Grecian Peninsula. It's been out to Cyprus. It's kind of filtering its way to Rome. It's now covered this very huge area. And these churches are being planted, but there's dissension within the church. And so what are they going to do? They're going to go back to those who have had the most experience in church. And this is a beautiful picture of seeking counsel of those who've been in ministry for a long time. Because there are things that we who have been in ministry for decades know that people that have not been in ministry for more than a couple of weeks or a couple of months or a couple of years, there's a few things that we've learned along the way. There's things that I can now tell you pretty emphatically that I've experienced because I've done things wrong one way and right another and been through problems and counseled people on all kinds of things. So if you were to come back and say, you know, Jeff, we got this problem in our church, I might be able to help you out. Maybe give you some godly wisdom. And that is exactly what we see in play here. They're going to go back to the home church. They're going to go back to the sending church. And they're going to talk through these things. And so the legalistic, pharisaical guys show up. And here's the problem. Whenever you begin to do a new work, whenever something happens, Scripture says it this way, and it's a picture that Luke actually gave us in Luke 5. You cannot, you cannot pour new wine into an old wineskin. The reason being, that new wine, when it begins to ferment will burst the old wineskin. It's dry, it's brittle, it is incapable of stretching and contracting and doing the moving that's necessary. And it's a picture of the work of the Spirit in the church. The church, when, when it's growing and moving, when it is organic, when it's an organism and it's being organized, it needs to be pliable. There are times when we try things, and you know what? Guess what? They don't work. And you need to readjust. It is only a new wineskin that can do any adjusting. Old wineskins cannot adjust to anything. They are set in their ways. They are brittle, they are dried up, and they're incapable of holding new wine. And so this is a new work. It's something that God is doing. It's fresh. It's exciting. And so they're really saying, look... We, we, we can't, you know, we can't do these things the old way. You see, what the Pharisees wanted to do is they wanted to stitch that veil back together. They said, forget this whole thing of letting everybody into the Holy of Holies. You know, get me some needle and thread. Let's close that puppy back up so that everybody needs to go the old way. We like the old way. 
Family of God, there's a time for the old way, but there's a time for the new way. And when God moves, we need to move with God, not against God. Because if you keep trying to pour new wine into an old wineskin, all that you're going to have is a mess. Because that old wineskin's going to burst and the contents are going to go everywhere. Because you can't hold it. You can't hold what's happening. And that's why it's important for us to change periodically. That's why it's important for us to examine our motivations. It's why it's important for us to look at the way we're doing things and say, is this the Lord or are we just simply trying to be an old wineskin? Do we just want to persevere? Are we trying to keep what we already have? Or do we want God to do something new? I want God to do something new. Now, some of that newness may look exactly like it did in the past. It may look much like the old things. But in this case, they're saying, look, we want to go back to Judaism. We want the law. We like that pressure. There are people who like that. You probably may know some of them yourself. I've met people, they actually seemingly enjoy the law. They like legalism. You know, if you're a child of grace, you really shouldn't like legalism. Because grace and legalism don't dwell well together. That's that's an old wineskin, you're trying to put new wine inside of it. Paul writes the book of Galatians to, to prove that point. So they're going to mount the defense to this whole case. It's going to, for, I think in this whole chapter, there really ultimately are four different little meetings. We're not going to highlight those things. It's probably unimportant anyway. But you're going to see a, a public welcome, Paul and his associates. You'll see a private meeting with Paul and some key leaders. You're going to see a second meeting at which these Judaizers are going to present their case. And then finally, the public discussion that, that's really had to kind of solve the matter. Verse 6, and it comes by Peter first, looking at this from his perspective. And they're going to, as they've organized the churches and as they've moved through these things, uh, you kind of get this picture of this now moving church, this new wineskin that's beginning to be filled with new wine. And, and you're going to run across opposition when that happens. As they're organizing these churches, you know, there's going to be some problems that are going to happen because you're going to run against the old establishment. You're, you're going to kind of bump into those people that like things the way they were. And while there's nothing wrong inherently with the way things were, very often when God's doing something new, you're going to stir up the ire of those who liked the old way. And so there's a, there's a picture in this for us as well. And I think that's kind of get busy or get out of the way. Don't block the door. Don't stop the progress. Don't keep the organism from growing. Don't, don't inhibit the, the new wineskin from being filled with new wine. If, if you're one of those people that have to have it your way, and if something changes, you know, who moved your cheese kind of thing, uh, that's, that's death to ministry. Because people don't remain the same. Cultures don't remain the same. Generations don't remain the same. And what happens when you look at the church, you look around the church and it's like, wow, we're all 60-something years old. And then pretty soon the church is empty because we're all dead. So we kind of need to rethink things periodically and ask God, is this what you want, Lord, or are we just doing this because it's really comfortable? 
Peter reviews the past, verse 6. And now the apostles, the elders, came together to discuss this matter, consider it. Uh, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the mouth of the Gentiles we should hear the word, and they should hear it and believe in the gospel. And so God knows the heart and acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. In other words, he's saying, look, there's only one way to be saved. And whether it's a Jewish person or a Gentile person, it's the same way. It's God's grace working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there was one Pentecost. That was enough. And he made no distinction between them, purifying their hearts by faith. And now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He says, look, the old wineskin's like this. We failed miserably at keeping the law. We failed miserably at living underneath the pressure of the law of Moses. Circumcision never saved anybody. It was an identifying mark of a people group. And and Jeremiah, if you remember, reminded us that, look, it's not about circumcision of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart that matters. And so he says, look, we need to move on. We, we couldn't bear that yoke before. We're not going to bear it now. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So here a Jewish man stands up and says, look, guys, this is about the grace of God. So he kind of reviews the past for them. He says, look, we were, remember what happened to us in the wilderness? You can almost imagine all the things that Peter could have said. You remember going down to the Temple Mount and you remember paying your, your tithe of your mint and the, your cumin? You remember going in and trying to find a, a lamb to be slaughtered for the ten people at your synagogue? You remember all those things? And none of us ever got saved that way. Every Yom Kippur, the next day, we were all in trouble. He says, we couldn't bear that yoke. How glorious it is to walk in the freedom of God's grace. Paul and Barnabas reported on the present situation, verse 12. And then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. He says, look, here's the deal. If you don't believe it, all you've got to do is look around. You see that guy over there? He was lame before he can walk. See that person over there? That, he was dead, and he's raised. See that whole group in the back? They were all sick, and they've been healed. You see, look, the present state of the church is this. You're looking at it. Here it is. Here's the church. It's around you. Incredible witness that was right before their very eyes. And it all came by exactly what Paul had just been doing. He was just simply preaching the gospel. And it got him beat up and stoned and left for dead. But people got saved and people got healed. And they're all standing going, yep, that was us. Every healthy church has that group of people. That was me. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. That's what the gospel does. That's what grace does. The law does not do that. The law can make you feel guilty. The law can identify the problem. But the law can't fix it. It never did. And so he says the state of the church, he's given a little state of the church address here, is this. 
God worked through them among the Gentiles. James now is going to relate it to the future, and this is a fairly healthy passage of Scripture. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, there in verse 13, Men and brethren, listen to me. So you've got Peter stands up. Paul's already spoken. James is now, this is a church meeting. This is the church elder board. They're all gathered together here in Jerusalem. They've got the Jerusalem council meeting going on. Simon has declared how God had at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. In other words, called out ones, the ecclesia, That means church. That's where we get that name. And so we are the called out ones. And as we've been called out for his name, what happened? Well, Simon, remember, this is the guy that's down in Jaffa. He travels back and goes with the guys back up to Caesarea where they meet Cornelius. And all the Gentiles are beginning to get saved. He says, look, this is what happened. And with these words, the prophets agree, just as it is written. For after this, after what? After the Gentiles have the gospel preached to them. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse reminds us of this very thing. He says, and it will be so until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So he's saying, look, you you got a little bit of an eschatological problem here. You're not quite getting it. You're not really understanding. God still has a plan for national Israel. But it's not today. It's later. It's for the future. And after this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. You see, that day is still in the future to us. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, are known to God from eternity, for they are his works. He says, look, the future is this. God's got a plan for Israel. There's going to be a temple on the Temple Mount. Right now, there's no temple on the Temple Mount. AD 70, Titus, Vespasian, destroys the temple, pushes the stones. You can see the pile of rubble at the bottom of the western wall to this day. There's no temple on the Temple Mount. There's a mosque sitting where the temple ought to be. You see, he said, well, God's going to fix that problem. But you've been called out of this. And it's not about the law. It's about grace. And so he calls them to make a decision. Verse 19, he goes on to say, And therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. It's like, look, we can't, why would we want to put that weight back on them? That's the yoke that none of the Jewish forefathers could bear. And God still has a plan for national Israel. God's got that under control. So why would we want to turn them back to circumcision in the law? but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. You see, that's still a good word for you today. Every person on the face of the earth should abstain from things that have come from idols. Jew and Gentile alike. Has nothing to do with your Jewishness. Has nothing to do with your Gentileness. It has to do with it's well-pleasing to God. And so he says, look, let's even the playing field here. So here's what we want you to do. From sexual immorality, that is a perfect word for everybody because it applies to everybody. 
It's best for you, it's best for your marriage, it's best for your life from things strangled. The reason they use strangled is during that day and time, that would be like you and I saying, hey, let's go grab some roadkill and eat it. They knew better. You strangled it, the meat was going to go bad, they had no refrigeration, so don't eat things that have been strangled. And from blood. Back during that day and time, in order for meat to be preserved, the first thing they did, unfortunately, kind of gross, but they slit the neck of the animal, hung it upside down, bled the blood out of it, so that the, the meat would not spoil. And so he just simply says, look, let's do the things that are good. Let's do the things that are right. Let's take some of these things that come from the Jewish law that are good for everybody, and let's do those things. But let's not put the full weight of the law Let's not bury people under the stuff that had no way of of helping us either. For Moses has had throughout many generations, those who preach him in every city, uh, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. There were all kinds of Moses followers. But you know what? Moses can't save. That's why God said, I will make unto you a prophet like Moses, which was Jesus. But him you shall hear. And then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them. And this is the letter. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were in the gen- of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some of you went out from us and have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. In other words, from this church meeting, they they issue a little bit of a letter saying, look, we're not telling you to keep the law. So when someone comes to you today and says you need to keep the law, you can take them to this passage. Because this is the result of the church board meeting that was held in Jerusalem in the first century. We gave no such command. It seemed good to us being assembled uh, in one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we've sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, in other words, it was confirmed by men, but it came from the Holy Spirit, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, you keep from blood, things strangled, and from sexual immorality, and keep yourselves free from these and you'll do well. Notice what they didn't say? You need to keep all the feast days. You need to be circumcised. You need to go through all the Levitical law. They put none of that on the early church. They said, you do the things that are right, As a Christian, you shouldn't be sexually immoral. As a Christian, you should do things that are good for your health. Amen? You you should live a healthy life as best as you possibly can. So he says, if you do these, you do well. And so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Amen. The bondage of the law was lifted off. So all these Judaizers that were coming around saying, hey, you need to be basically Jewish and also add in Jesus to the mix, because that was what they were really saying. saying, you need to keep the full letter of the law. 
You, you need to absolutely observe the Sabbath. Uh, and this is one of those passages that I will often take our Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters to and say, really? Because the Jerusalem Council that included the apostles said nothing about the Sabbath keeping here. They said, all they said was this. They gathered the multitude together, gave them the letter, and they were encouraged. And now Judas and Silas, among themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. And however, it seemed good that Silas would remain there. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, also with many others. You see, the, the crux of this is this. Ministry is not meant to be complex. Ministry is meant to be about preaching the gospel and the full counsel of God's word. Nothing more. All the other stuff sometimes gets confusing to people. If you teach the word, if you preach the gospel, you do well. We, we, we overcomplicate, I believe, what the Lord wants to do with us. Sometimes church meetings turn into these, these places where division can easily happen. As Peter reviews the past and Paul and Barnabas talk about the present, James relates to the future, they, they come up with this decision. And the decision was a simple one. Look, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's preach the gospel. In this business meeting, you notice they weren't talking about the color of the church. They weren't talking about the, you know, the balanced pews or chairs. They weren't talking about things that we would say, you know, yeah, they matter, but they're practical things. They're things about which, if, if you put ten people in a room, tell you a little secret, the reason we don't ask everybody what color everybody wants the church is, we'll get thousands of different color combinations. And no one will be happy then. It's actually better for a handful of people who have skills and gifts and talents and some creativity to come up with a few color schemes and we just paint the building. Because no matter what color it gets painted, somebody's going to be unhappy. A vast majority of people are going to be perfectly okay with whatever it is because they're going to be hearing from the Lord. And then you're going to have the people that are absolutely thrilled because it's their favorite color. But you will always have people who don't like what's going on. So I'm going to give you a little secret. I don't try and make everybody happy because it's impossible. It cannot be done. If we had a church of 10, I could not make everybody happy. So what I try and do is hear from the Lord and surround myself with godly men who also hear from the Lord, and I ask them what they've heard from the Lord, and we try and come to a consensus by hearing from the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit and then moving forward. Because if you want something to die, put it to a vote. Make a committee. Give somebody some authority. Well, I am the person that's in charge of the color that the posts get painted. And then the people who are painting the posts won't like the people who are painting the columns, and the people who are painting the columns won't like the color of the roof, and you have to change the roof, and before you know it, it's just a mess. We need to do the right thing. And the right thing is, let's seek the Lord, let's preach the word, let's preach the gospel, and these other things 
Be patient, be kind, be gentle. Recognize that many things in life are nothing more than a subjective choice. And, and, and don't freak out over it. Allow God to make a new wineskin, amen? And then put some new wine in it. And to that end, a team is way better than solo, and let's see if we can wrap this up. And then after some days, Paul and Barnabas said, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit our brethren in every city. So now they're making a trip back through the cities that they've just been through, where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. This is an important part of every missionary endeavor. It's the reason that we send teams back to check on the pastors of the churches that we planted. It's the reason I travel to the cities that I've been to previously in ministry. It's the reason we go. It's to go and encourage them. It's to lift up their feeble hands. It's to see what needs there are. It's to come alongside and strengthen them. Because it's not easy. We get that from this passage. This is what the first century church did. I believe it's still a great word for us today. Then now Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, as you know, was determined to take with him John Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take them uh, and take the one with him who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. So there's a little disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And this is the place where they split. And I want you to notice something. It's not a hostile split. It's two people realizing that God's called them to do different things. And that's okay. Every ministry does not have to look like something else. God can do two unique works with two different people, and both can be good. And then the contention because, became so sharp that they parted uh, from one another. So there was contention. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. And so really what happens is the effort gets doubled. It seemed like it was a problem, and there was a disagreement. But God, as he always does, turns those things which were meant for evil and uses them for good. Amen? And the church is better for it. Amen? Why don't you stand and let's pray. I'm going to bring worship team back up. Just going to do one song. We managed to do two chapters. Pretty much miraculous. I don't know how that happened. Must be a Jesus thing, but we're right at eight, so we're going to close in prayer and then we're going to simply close in song tonight. We're going to bring some pastors forward. Um, once we get done with this last song, uh, please feel free to go. If you need to go, pick up your kids or, or head out. If you want prayer, uh, you can simply come forward, and the pastors will be available for prayer. Father, we thank you for the time tonight. Thank you for the beautiful picture of the early church and how it kept the main thing the main thing. Kept it simple. I preached the gospel. I taught your word. And because of it, people were saved, lives were transformed, churches were planted, and they were strengthened and grew. Relationships were tested and challenged, but ultimately, uh, you were glorified in all these things. And so we pray, God, you're glorified in us. Uh, bless us as your people. Strengthen us, Lord, for what lies ahead. Help us, this church, to be a new wineskin in which you can pour new wine We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.